0: Hey, everybody, just two quick plugs before we start the show. I am featured this week on both the Versecraft podcast and the I Hate Matt Wall podcast. I will include links to the episodes. Uh, Elijah on Versecraft was kind enough to... Uh, do a little discussion of a poem of mine. I've not listened because I can't stand listening to people say anything nice about my poems. <laughs> so with any luck, he'll, he'll only say mean things and then I should be safe. But I, I have no doubt based on his uh, his treatments of other poems that he will make me sound much smarter than I actually am. Uh, so you should go. I'll, I'll include a link to that in show notes, but I, you should also just go in whatever your podcast tr- distributor is. Go to Versecraft. Uh, give it a give it give it a subscribe give it a subscription. What do you call that? Just click the subscribe button, the follow, the check mark. Or no, does check mark being unsubscribe. Do the good one, and then give them some stars. And then uh, also this week, and la- I don't I don't know this is this week, last week, but uh, Matt Wall on the Matt Wall podcast, the I hate Matt Wall podcast. Sorry, has. Uh, is including a, another conversation we recorded. I think he's broken it up into like eighty different parts, but at least some of those parts are up now. I will include links to that as well, and please do go subscribe to his show and uh, and give him some some stars. Also, uh, again, that's Versecraft by Elijah Blumhoff and the I Hate Matt Wall podcast by some guy whose name I forget. One of the genuine delights of doing this podcast has been learning how how like, eager and generous uh, y'all have been, listeners have been, with uh, writing in to let me know when I get things wrong and helping me understand things better. I, I have learned a lot, and I, you know, I have uh, continued to change how I think about poetry and all of these other intractable problems. I have been even more surprised, though, by uh, the <laughs> by a particular kind of experience that I think is the product of of recording convers particularly conversations that are uh, I, yeah, either interviews or talks with other of the co-hosts. Because when I'm doing one of these solo, like I am today, which is with any luck the day I'm going to release it. I I can I can whiz through a little more efficiently, but when I you know when I book a bunch of conversations in advance and I have, to, I have to get all my prep done and then I end up having a backlog, then often I will end up sitting on an episode for a while before putting it out. But sometimes, as happened recently, I will listen to myself just be appallingly wrong about something. And then have to release it anyway. Uh, so what I typically do is I'll I'll try to tidy things up as much as possible, make them presentable, release it, and then just await the emails explaining to me how I fucked up. What surprised me <laughs> most recently is when I listened to a, a, an episode, edited it, edited it, found myself to be intolerably wrong about something, and then released it, waited, and didn't hear from any of you. So now, today, I've got to address it myself. Thanks for nothing, Ethan. I'm Matthew Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Sleerickets. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it, and thank you especially if you have had a chance to recommend the show to a friend. A listener wrote in recently, asking like where he should spread the word, or to whom, or what people might be interested. And I'm very, I'm thrilled to have people spreading the word wherever. But mostly, uh, I would just love for you to tell people you already talked to anyway, uh, if you think they might like. The show, uh, or if you if you feel like writing a profile in in, uh, in LitHub, then then have that as well. But um, uh, if you like the show and you have uh, have run out of episodes, or as Elijah says, he has recently told me he's done. You have caught up with the weekly releases, then you can go to sleerickets.substack.com and sign up for the Secret Show, which is very very cheap the The monthly fee is not the month. The monthly rate is not going to go up, uh, but the annual fee, which right now is alarmingly discounted, is going to uh, after the new year is going to become only uh, moderately discounted. Uh, so, if you sign up now to get uh, to to get grandfathered in on that, and if you just like to try it out, then put your email in and get access to a free week of uh, of episodes. There are twenty two, twenty three up there now, and and more coming all the time in my recent conversation with John Dilworth he is a didactic poet he, he writes inspirational poems and in my conversation with him in the, in the the toward the the second you know half I I asked him about something that had troubled me because my first encounter with him with his work was watching a video of a group of seemingly quite well-to-do white people in a in a fancy setting, I think it was the it was the the private bar in the, the on the the upper floors of a a luxury high rise in Atlanta. My, my first encounter was watching him in that setting, reading poems or deli- reciting from memory poems about overcoming a a you know his tough upbringing, and I, and I was watching fancy white people in expensive clothes, sipping their boutique cocktails and smiling and nodding along. And my my thought, fair or unfair, was that, well, maybe part of what they're getting out of this is not necessarily what he intends for people to get out of it. And so I asked him about this. I asked if if maybe people who who didn't have so much to overcome enjoyed his work, not simply because they could relate his lessons to their own lives, because it reassured them in their desire not to offer support to those who were struggling themselves. And he he, as he said, well, that kind of makes sense. We had We had, a, I think, a worthwhile conversation about it. He was unbelievably gracious throughout the interview. I do recommend you listen if you have not already. But listening back to this conversation, I kept thinking, like, what is it that you're asking? Like wh- what are you asking him? You're saying, you write these poems and you have a certain effect in mind that you're aiming for and then other people read them or hear them and some of those people respond in a way you didn't intend and like, what is that? Why am I asking him about that? Like, what is that? Why is that his problem? And it just reminded me of all of the times I've been so irritated by people with a similar line of argumentation, like the the people who who you know blamed Columbine on Marilyn Manson, or the people who who, <laughs> who blamed Nazism on Nietzsche. Which, like, I mean, Nietzsche definitely had harsh words for the Jews, but he also like his biggest objection to Judaism was that it gave rise to Christianity, and he reserved some of his harshest words for the German people who's really his, his sister was an anti-semite but that's just me reaching reading Nietzsche in the dog park this morning like a weirdo listening to this interview I thought you know I, John De says that his goal his 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 target audience is everyone right he's he's trying to include as many people as possible but I do think it's fair to say that he is he is at the same time maybe writing to people who are, ready to read his poems in a certain frame of mind or what my old philosophy teacher would have called a a specific mood the right mood which is you know in his case i think the mood the uh, uh, to be to be inspired to have one's uh spirits lifted and to be motivated to overcome the obstacles one faces in one's own life that's what he was after it's not my cup of tea it's not why i go to poems but like why was i like blaming him for how some white people in a bar were responding to his poems in my own mind so listening to the interview I I just got so frustrated with myself but I couldn't you know I didn't want to just cut that whole section out it seemed dishonest it also seemed like I wanted to give him a chance to say what he had to say about his own work so so I put it out and I and I just braced for the flood of uh, of uh, corrections from y'all, and they didn't come. So as I so, so as I began to sink in that I was going to have to compose my own apology, I I was reminded of this particular poetry world scandal. Now, I I keep a, a kind of a running list in the drafts folder of my email, uh, in which I I. Uh, I write down the the p- possible topics for future episodes. Mostly, I use this when I'm uh, corresponding with potential guests. Uh, if someone says that he's interested in coming on the show, I will typically follow up by saying, uh, "Well, here's a list of some possible things to talk about, because I would rather not just talk about how was your childhood and, and what book do you have to promote. Uh, let's pick something from there, or let me know if if you have something else. You know, if you have something else in mind." And we and we work from there, and, and sometimes we we do take something off the list, and then I I remove it and I, I update the list, and I you know it it, it grows and shrinks over time uh, accordingly. One item that nobody has ever touched, <laughs> that nobody has ever shown the slightest interest in, and that even when I've uh, brought it to the attention of some of my uh, co-hosts, the response I've gotten has been. Uh, holy shit! No, I wouldn't touch that story with Cameron's dick. Uh, to which I responded, "You know, Alice, that's really not necessary." This story was one that I, you know, I thought. Uh, I think Cameron's response was like, "Well, I don't think there's anything new to say about it. Like, I, I don't think my 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 judgment will have changed, and and so like, why go back? Why bother?" And I kind of figured, like, I wouldn't bother. Because like, I I don't need to, like, I don't, this isn't just a a poetry world scandal history podcast. I I tend not to bring something up unless I think there's maybe something new to say about it. And so I let it lie. But thinking about this Dilworth interview, it brought me back and I realized, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This question of whether or not a poet is allowed to write only to a particular audience, whether he's responsible for the, the, for the reactions of all possible audiences to his poems, this uh, was a question that was, uh, if not at the heart of, then adjacent to the heart of this particular scandal. So most of the action took place at the AWP conference in 2011 in Washington, D.C., but the story really begins uh, eight years earlier with the publication in 2003 of a book entitled What narcissism means to me, and specifically with the inclusion in that book of a poem called The Change. Uh, Just before I get into the whole complicated history here, I'll I'll just read this poem for you to let you form your own first impressions if you are not already familiar. This is The Change by Tony Hoagland. from the book, What Narcissism Means to Me. Again, it's called The Change by Tony Hoagland. The season turned like the page of a glossy fashion magazine. In the park, the daffodils came up, and in the parking lot, the new car models were on parade. Sometimes I think that nothing really changes. The young girls show the latest crop of tummies, and the new president proves that he's a dummy, But remember the tennis match we watched that year? Right before our eyes, some tough little European blonde pitted against that big black girl from Alabama, cornrowed hair and Zulu bangles on her arms, some outrageous name like Vandella Aphrodite. We were just walking past the lounge and got sucked in by the screen above the bar, and pretty soon we started to care about who won putting ourselves into each whacked return as the volleys went back and forth and back like some contest between the old world and the new. And you loved her complicated hair and her to hell with everybody stare. And I, I couldn't help wanting the white girl to come out on top because she was one of my kind, my tribe, with her pale eyes and thin lips. And because the black girl was so big and so black, so unintimidated, hitting the ball like she was driving the Emancipation Proclamation down Abraham Lincoln's throat, like she wasn't asking anyone's permission. There are moments when history passes you so close you can smell its breath. You can reach your hand out and touch it on its flank. And I don't watch all that much Masterpiece Theater, but I could feel the end of an era there in front of those bleachers full of people in their Sunday tennis-watching clothes as that black girl wore down her opponent, then kicked her ass good, then thumped her once more for good measure and stood up on the red clay court holding her racket over her head like a guitar. And the little pink judge had to climb up on a box to put the ribbon on her neck, still managing to smile into the camera flash, even though everything was changing. And in fact, everything had already changed. Poof, remember? It was the 20th century almost gone. We were there. And when we went to put it back where it belonged, it was past us and we were changed. So Claudia Rankin, who uh, at the time this book came out was uh, Tony Hoagland's colleague. I have not been able to find out exactly what school that was at. Let me see where Tony Hoagland taught. Tony Hoagland's dead now. So Tony, I think it was Houston. Tony Hoagland taught at Houston. I'm not sure though. This was this was actually the year before I had uh, Rankin as a visiting writer professor in, at Georgia. But she and Hoagland were colleagues at the time this book came out. And it, the eight years later, at the 2011 AWP Conference, the Association of Writers and writing, uh, writing Programs, she gave a talk. And she began the talk by reading this poem she then had this uh, comment on it. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, uh, it's, it's actually relatively short, but it's probably a little long for the podcast. Um, but I'll just read the, the beginning. I don't like using the word racist because if you use it, it means you are an angry black person. Angry black people are the old black and everyone knows that's pathological. The new black is accomplished, assimilated and integrated. The new black reaches across the aisle the old black is positioned in a no-win situation where to express an opinion based on what you see, experience, feel, or deduce risks falling right into some white folks notion of black insanity. She, She goes on to describe her experience reading this poem for the first time. She says, I once had a colleague who wrote what some readers perceive to be a racist poem. When I first read it, I thought, what? What? Why I stuttered, I don't know, but sometimes the purity of an emotion gets tripped up by thought. This poem is an exploration of narcissism in our society, a parody, perhaps. Nonetheless, certain phrases from the poem stuck in my craw. Phrases like, I couldn't help wanting the white girl, this tough European blonde, to come out on top, because she was one of my kind, my tribe, with her pale eyes and thin lips, were being pitted against phrases like so big and so black, big black girl from Alabama, with cornrowed hair and Zulu bangles on her arms, and some outrageous name like Vandella Aphrodite. Were these phrases intended as a performance of the inroad? Inroad is spelled the letter N hyphen R-O-A-D. I don't, because this is a transcript on, uh, the Poetry Society, you know, po- what is it? Academic Academy of American Poets um, website. Uh, I don't know if this is her text or this is this is a, a, a third party transcript. But I glean that she is she's she's constructing a neologism with some of the same implications that say came up in Terence Hayes' book of sonnets when he in one of the poems he uses. The, the word I-N-W-A-R-D as a charged homophone for in uh, hyphen W-O-R-D. It's not totally clear to me, but I, I think that's sort of what she's doing, an inroad or a road to the N word, I, I guess. Uh, I let the book close on the desk, she goes on, and stared out the window through non-existent trees. There is a parking lot out there. And though my emotions can at times feel wrong-headed, sometimes you just have to say it. What the fuck? It took me a minute, the kind that folds out into months, to get over the actual words on the page. So she, she goes on about her, uh, her reaction, but then she talks about going to this colleague, going to Hoagland, and, and asking him about it. She says, When asked what his thinking was while working on the poem, my colleague said this poem is for white people. Did he say it was for white people to see themselves and their thinking? He did not say that. He said it was for white people. What I heard was, I don't need to explain myself to you, black girl. And though the last time I looked in the mirror, I looked like my black mother and not how she looked when she was a child, I was transporting the language of the poem, Black Girl, to refer to, to myself and getting even angrier. And though I realized this was me thinking as him and not, in fact, him speaking, when offense is being taken, offense is heard everywhere, even in the imagination. And because I could taste the vomit of Reconstruction and slavery in the back of my throat, I wasn't saying much. But he was starting to shout at me, so in his imagination, somebody else must have been speaking. Needless to say, before our conversation started, it was over. Uh, there are she 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 goes on and she um she talks a little bit more about. Uh, about her, her kind of later cogitation on this poem and, and what she thinks might've been going on there, as well as just sort of her experience having her feelings hurt. And and she kind of ends by saying, I, I just sort of want to bring this to you to let you see it. Um, my alertness, my openness, my desire to engage my colleague's poem, my colleague's words actually demands my presence, my looking back at him. So here I am looking back, talking back, and as, it, and as insane as it is saying, please, that's the end of the, the, um, the talk. Uh, she then goes on to read his response, which, uh, which she invited and, and he wrote. But there were, first, I just want to say, like there were a few things that surprised me about this talk. Um, first, there's a kind of an interesting moment. Uh, it's a very, very small thing, but she says she takes Hoagland to task for being unpatriotic, which is, which is wild, I, she says, No one was calling for a lynching in this poem, which we all know as a, as criminal racist behavior. But this other thing, this lack of support for the American tennis player, this identifying by skin color with anyone else across the Atlantic simply because the one right in front of you has black skin and claims all the same rights, was that not too racism? So she, she's saying this is racist, but she's also saying like it's, he is, you know, it, it seems to be so racist that it's actually... It violates his duty to country, or at least his kind sort of spiritual duty to country. And I'm, as I said, I I both totally understand this. In um, 2001 or 2, I forget what the calendar year was. I was in Krakow for a couple nights with uh, some other some classmates to, and it was the, we were there to visit the two major locations of Auschwitz. Uh, but but the the um, one of the nights we were there. The, there was a World, the World Cup was on and there was a big game. So we went to the bar to watch the game and the two teams playing were the US and Germany. And so <laughs> this bar in Krakow, a spitting distance from Auschwitz was crammed with Americans and Germans all rooting for their respective soccer teams. I'm not a huge soccer fan, I'm not a sports fan uh, of, of, really of any description, but boy, I've never rooted so hard for the US. And like part of what characterizes the, the America in in international contexts is that there's no such thing as someone who looks like an American right Americans can really I mean look like anybody, which is something that's kind of cool. I mean just on the dumbest level it's it's always sort of refreshing to see like American teams representing America at the Olympics wherever else, to look like anybody, look like people from anywhere in the world because that's the nature of the country. And so I totally understand Rankin's like like specific bristling at Hoagland's like failure to support the fucking girl from Alabama. Good Lord. Uh, this is, it, it's, um, although neither she nor her sister were born in Alabama, it, it seems likely that the Vandella Aphrodite character is probably Venus Williams, who in addition to being a really dominant Tennis player um, at the time was is, is is even taller than her sister, is very is just sort of f- very physically impressive. And you know, the 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 first letter being V and then Aphrodite makes one think it probably is Venus, I and mean, it's hard to see who else he could be talking about. Though I guess it could be a composite. But but then like it makes me think like Williams is like a really boring, normal English name. Like it's not like that's like the least outrageous name imaginable. But at any rate. I totally, totally am with uh, Rankin in feeling a little bit uh, put out with Ho- Hoagland for like failing his countrymen in this instance. But what's so surprising is that like it is it is almost unimaginable that somebody today arguing from Rankin's perspective in a context like this could could challenge a peer, for failing to demonstrate patriotism. I think just because part of the nature of the, the big national public conversation about race over the last several years has been the, 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 the persistent characterization of America as like a fundamentally deeply saturatedly racist, it's uniquely uh, originally racist country. And so it's just, um, I don't have a point here. I just like, it was just surprising to me to hear that this lack of support for the American tennis player. You know, he's, he, he's, it's not just that he's racist, it's that he's siding with the fucking European. Come on now, come on Tony. Um, another thing that surprised me was this, this joke that she refers to. And, and I say joke with caution, but, but I do think that's what she means. So she says, um, After she says, needless to say, before our conversation started, it was over. She says, I can still see myself back then confused at the rate of escalation, given that I was so used to everyone reassuring everyone that everyone accepted everyone and race didn't matter. Who let America in the room? How did things get out of hand so quickly? I sometimes wonder if one of us had had the presence of mind to say, easy slave girl, slow down, grand wizard. Could anyone have laughed? Now, just to set aside for the moment um, this question of you know, what it means that every, she was used to everyone reassuring everyone that, that, uh, that race didn't matter and, and what exactly she means by who let America in the room. I am so fascinated by this counterfactual. I sometimes wonder if one of us had had the presence of mind to say, easy, slave girl, slow down, grand wizard. Could anyone have laughed? I mean, it is hard to read those words without cringing. And yet, I also think the sentence doesn't really make any sense unless she's suggesting that, like, A, saying this would have, saying easy slave girl, slow down grand wizard would have required presence of mind, as in like would have been a a comparatively wise thing to say and B, that it would have been funny, right? Could anyone have laughed? Meaning, I I think that like tensions were so high that she's saying, I don't know that we could have laughed at what I I guess ostensibly would have been a funny joke. And I mean, just imagine, like just trying to think of like an American... Uh, English department today in which easy slave girl slow down Grand Wizard could have been a a savvy collegial f- genuinely funny way to cool down an argument about race like, I I I can I, I just can't picture it and yet like maybe that maybe that would have been better like maybe maybe that's not a maybe that maybe maybe such a place would actually be a good place to be I, I don't know i mean certainly if it would be possible to cool down conversations about race by joking in a way that everyone could honestly laugh at that seems like it it is an unequivocal good uh i'm just sort of like uh, i just marvel at this Postulation that she, like this is her, this is her what if, and it's a it's a sort of a, it's almost hopeful. Like w- like wouldn't that have been better, and and maybe we were already too far gone to laugh at that. So those two things surprised me. Also, I think just overall, I was surprised by the open endedness of her response to Hoagland and the social critics have gotten really uh, excited about using the word epistemic um, and I so I hesitate to use it just because it's sexy at the moment but, but I, do, I, I am surprised by the epistemic humility that she displays in, in seemingly really asking him like so tell me what you were thinking and, and also that moment when she imagines when she acknowledges that like in her head she was arguing with someone else and and she could see that he was doing the same thing, like he was yelling at, at what he imagined she was saying. That she has that clarity of mind, and the 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 wisdom and the and the coherence to say that in a way that that makes sense to the reader, it makes sense to to the the audience. This was given as a, as a spoken talk, and I think it would have been a pretty um, a pretty affecting one. I have not read by any means all of Claudia Rankin's work but you know I I recently read um, The White Card which is a late, uh, I think it's her first play but it came out after Citizen and um, I also read recently and then more recently I read Don't Let Me Be Lonely, Um, I've read Citizen, I uh, have read also a handful of essays that appeared in various places and then some freestanding poems of hers and what the paradox I, I, I observe in in her work, and it becomes very difficult to distinguish genre. I think as with Joelle McSweeney, Claudia Rankin is someone who tends to have this body of words that she then frames in different. Supposed genres almost kind of without much concern for the conventions of that genre, so that you know, a, a, a section that appears in print as a prose essay will then be reproduced verbatim as a prose poem. And and like, fine, I think that's like, who cares? Like, that's not a big deal, but I, I just mean to say that like, it's it's um, sometimes all, like the her her work, her criticism, all of this tends to kind of blur together and the the. The paradoxical observation I have, among other things, is that as her work has shifted over time, as everybody's work, you know, hopefully shifts, changes, grows over time, her her trajectory has been away from uncertainty. That the more time passes, the less of a question mark, there is even an implied one at the end of any of her sentences. The more those become, at best, rhetorical questions. Uh, until, you know, in a like the, the like honestly, just like painfully, embarrassingly ham fisted poem, Weather, that appeared in the New York Times Magazine in June of 2020, it, it, there's just no room at all for any uncertainty uh the, the the white card similarly is you know reminds me very much of John Logan's uh, play red which is which is you know like the white card is a is a taut and entertaining story about the moral triumph of a art of an art world spoiled brat Right, I mean, like both of them are basically the same story in in that way, and in both cases, all conclusions are foregone, and the the primary response intended for the audience is, is, is the, the primary intended response is for the audience to say, "Hmm, yes, we were right, we were right to vote for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden." I mean, which, which again, which I did too, but like, like it's it's reassurance of an existing set of liberal uh, 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 givens. Uh, priors is the now, as uh, Cameron always likes me to tell him, what's what's sexy. So the cool kids would say priors instead of givens. Uh, and that seems to be the direction of her writing. Now, insofar as she is is an activist, which I think I think she she really is, I mean, she's, if anything, an, an activist, I think that maybe be certainly understandable and maybe even a strength for her to grow in her certainty. Insofar as she's a poet, and insofar as she's written, I think, really affecting poems. it makes me sad because I just think I think her writing has gotten less emotionally and spiritually m- moving. It's gotten less supple. it's gotten less interesting. and uh, and you know I'm a, I'm a godless uh, uh, art world spoiled brat myself. So that's you know that's what I care most about. But you know, in response to this, so uh, I should say one of the uh, one of the ways in which I was not surprised was that I, I remembered this poem as being like sinus-clearingly obnoxious and and like just really 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 hard to read in a way that doesn't have like a strong tang, like a painful flavor of racism to it now I always find the conversation about whether or not somebody is in his heart racist or like some work is in it some some like like platonic essential way racist I just think this is a kind of a, a pointless conversation because as I said I think we're all you know what who knows what secrets lurk in the hearts of men you know the answer is like shittiness like a bunch of shittiness lurks in the hearts of men but what is a meaningful question I think is like does this, speech or action have a racist effect? Does it alienate people in a racist way? Does it impact people's lives in a racist way? Like, is Donald Trump in his heart of hearts racist? I don't know. Did he do and say a lot of things <laughs> that affected people in racist ways? For sure, right? That to me is kind of the, 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 that's the crux. And so I think similarly with this poem, like I have no idea what's in Tony Hoagland's heart, but like, boy, this poem, it is... Um, it is difficult. It is not at all difficult to imagine somebody reading this poem and being hurt and feeling alienated. Uh, and honestly, like I, I feel that in the same way that, like this conversation. There's a um, there's a great old famous uh, Eddie Murphy SNL sketch called "White Like Me," definitely worth seeing if you haven't seen. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's it is um, it's very funny. He he dresses up uh and puts on makeup as a as a white man in a way that like there's definitely a nod to his version of a white man in Dave Chappelle's later version of a white man and in, in the Chappelle show, uh when he does the new ca- newscaster character. But um the the the, the Eddie Murphy white like me character discovers that when he goes about the world dressed as a white man, that you know secretly when there are no black people around, the whole world is a party and people give away things for free and they're you know the, the the city bus is full of sexy waitresses and cocktails and free money everywhere at the bank and um and uh and it's it's funny and I think you know when something is funny in that way it's because it rings true. Now I think in this particular case what rings true about the sketch is not actually the lived experience, to use a, another au uh, courant phrase, of white people around other white people. I think what it rings true with is that the, the, the feeling of alienation one has, being excluded from something, is that when one is not around, life's a party. And everybody has it easy. That that's that's what's funny and vindicating about the sketch is that like, oh, I knew it. I knew that's what it was like. That that's what it chimes with. Now, uh, ugly as Tony Hoagland's characterization is, it is much closer to the way white people talk. Not all white people, but specifically, you know, in my experience, like white people of an older generation often will talk. When they're around only other white people, like that's what it is. It's not constantly dropping the N word. I mean, white people are so nervous around each other about not seeming racist. I mean, that's that's like particularly liberal white people just bend over backwards to impress each other with how not racist they are. Uh, But you know, particularly among people of an older generation, um, you know, sometimes people not of a, a you know necessary liberal or progressive perspective there the way that tony hoagland talks in this poem reminds me of the way like my old boss used to talk when like the black employees were not in the room it was not he would he would have insisted he was not being racist but of course had anyone had any black person been in the room then like he would have recognized that the way he was talking would have been hurtful so i think that kind of that is the way in which this poem is so stings so much and is not fun the way white like me is fun because it's a lot closer to like the way your uncle talks you're sorry you're if you're white your white uncle talks when when he's alone with you and thinks you're on his side right um not all uncles not all not all hashtag not all white uncles uh but I think like that's part of what is happening in the poem I'll read Hoagland's response or at least part of it it's it's not as long as um, the the talk um I I, I, I was surprised I, what I, what I was surprised by rereading all of this was I, I did remember his his poem seeming racist I did not remember how bad his behavior was and you know we only have Rankin's account of their conversation back in 2003. But his response to her, which he wrote in two thousand eleven, is he's just such a jerk. All right, I'll, I'll read. Let me see. Um, I mean, I'm not going to read all this, but I'll read. I'll read some of this. So hey, this is the beginning. This is how he starts. Thank you, for, dear Claudia. Thank you for inviting me to respond to your AWP report on the subject of race in my poem, "The Change." To start off, let me say that I thought back when we were colleagues, and I still think that. that to me, you are naive when it comes to the subject of American racism. Naive not to believe that it permeates the psychic collective consciousness and unconsciousness of most Americans in ways that are mostly ugly. As plenty of people pointed out at the time, that is about the least diplomatic way he could have started this. I mean, maybe the least diplomatic way would have been to refuse to respond at all. But he starts, he says, let me, st- to start off, let me say that I thought you were naive. And I still think you're naive. I mean, good God. And, and you know, and and uh, I'm, I'm certainly not the first to, to, to note that like maybe Claudia Rankin, who certainly has spent a great deal of time thinking about race, experiencing racism firsthand, chewing on it, intellectually, emotionally, artistically. Maybe naive is not really the word to describe her perspective. But in addition to Hoagland's personal behavioral shittiness, I was really startled to see that what he is pointing out is, is almost certainly how somebody taking up the banner of Rankin's cause would talk today. You're naive not to believe that racism permeates the psychic collective consciousness. He says, racism permeates the psychic collective consciousness and unconsciousness of most Americans in ways that are mostly ugly. I mean, that is, that's like from the Bible of Robin DiAngelo. The elements of that confusion, he goes on, are, as we all know, guilt, fear, resentment, and wariness. Its sources are historical and economic and institutionalized. We drank racism with our mother's milk and we relearn it every day as we weave our way through our landscapes of endless inequality. I mean, that is, truly could be like script for a DEI HR exercise. That is one reason why it seems foolish and costly to think that the topic of race belongs only to brown-skinned Americans and not white-skinned Americans, but many poets and readers think that. Claudia Rankin, to her credit, doesn't think that, or at least at the time, she she was certainly somebody who, who, as we've mentioned before, like invited, uh, invited, and, and, and really insisted that like more white poets write about race, uh, that it's not sufficient to leave it up to black and brown skinned uh, Americans. Um, he he goes on to do a sort of a goofy a goofy tap dance where he he lists all of these. Descript, descriptors and all these things, that categories he falls into, including racist and sexist and homophobe and whatever. And this is kind of a, like a, a hacky, crummy uh, rhetorical game to play. Um, he, he does say one other thing that I found poignant. I mean, he is in his poem, in his behavior at the faculty lounge in 2003, and in this letter, he is just so unwilling to, to just come to the table at all. You know, like he, it, just as I was surprised by how how generous Rankin is and saying like, okay, well, let's talk this through. Like, let's figure out what what's going on. Let's like, help me understand. And see, she seems really in this case to mean, help me understand in a way that like in 2019, when she writes that essay about, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to understand white men's perspective. And so I asked them about it on first-class airplanes <laughs> or in the first-class section of various air, uh, flights I took and the first-class lounge of the airport. Um, in that essay she she keeps saying that all she wants to do is listen to white men, white men and then there's there's literally like nothing that she learns like clearly the entire the entire essay is just her uh schooling white people or or like observing how they don't understand things that her mind seems very much not open to being changed or expanded in that case in 2011 and in her, at least in her recounting of 2003 she seems really to be inviting Hoagland to have a conversation and he's just refusing he just refuses he's such a he's such an incorrigible jerk here that like it becomes almost impossible to have a a, to like address the the racism in the poem because it it, he won't even he won't even sit down to talk but he does say something here um he says it in, in a dismissive way but i still find it to be sort of touching he says I don't believe in explaining my poems to other poets. They are part of my tribe, and I expect them to be resilient readers. Well, clearly, like the the upshot of that, uh, of, of that sentence is that he. It's a big big compound sentence. Is that he is not going to engage with her? The 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 essence of it is that, and he uses that word advisedly. It's the same word he uses in the poem. He says, they are part of my tribe. And I thought of this when um, so I first learned of Christopher Hitchens' work when I still believed in God. And I found him to be just unbelievably acidic and ungenerous and bitter and nasty. Um, He wrote a book. He was probably the most spiteful of the of the big uh, new atheist figures, his his book was called "God Is Not Great: uh, Why Religion Poisons Everything," <laughs> which really like leaves no room for for nuance. But I remember when he died, uh, and and my you know I think my my own thinking on religion had shifted to that point. But when he died, I I still didn't like. Him, but I was moved, and it was really because I I thought of him as a member of the tribe. Like he was above all else, he was a writer. He was a a steady drinker and smoker. He was a raconteur. He loved having arguments and conversations, but mostly he just wrote. He just wrote and wrote and wrote nonstop his whole life. That's what he loved best. That's what he was most consistent at. He changed his opinion famously on a number of different questions, but what he didn't change is that he continued to write and write and write. And it's easy to disagree with him, especially when he says something like, <laughs> it's, like it's kind of worth reading just because it's funny, even if only ironically, his essay on why women aren't funny. <laughs> but he—he's even if you reject all of his arguments, he's a pleasure to read. And I felt this way too about ta Coates. I remember when he was, he used to get uh, pestered by interviewers saying like, well, why aren't you, why aren't you offering solutions? You're just pointing out problems. You're not, you're not offering us solutions. And his response was like, I'm not a politician. I'm a writer. Like My job is to put words together so that they, they, they convey true things clearly. My job is not to come up with new policy, right? I am a writer. That's what I do. And you know, like plenty of other American uh, writers, he expatriated to Paris. So, like in both cases, I had, I didn't necessarily agree with or find myself lining up with those guys, but I, I connected with them as members of the tribe. They're writers. And I, I, as I said, I found this touching in Hoagland's letter, even if he surrounds it with so much shittiness that it's impossible to, uh, to hear anything but like a, like a cranky old man. And he was, I mean, he was an old man. He died uh, just a few years after after writing this letter. Um, Rankin finished her presentation with the reading of a poem that uh, at the time was called, We Heard Healthcare and We Thought Public Option. It's called The Health of Us in a later published edition. Um, I, I'll go ahead and read it here because it is the end of her presentation. I, I don't think it's, it's totally relevant to the conversation and it's also, I think, not her best work. This is, this is the version that later came out in print. We heard healthcare and we thought public option. We thought reaching across the street, across the lines, across the aisle was the manifestation of not a red state, not a blue state, but these United States. We thought we could be sure of ourselves in this one way, sure of our human element, our basic decency. And if justice was how love showed itself in public, then love was defined by access to care when someone, anyone thought that cough, that Burned, the chest was probably nothing. But who who knew that fever after three days, that inability to breathe, to sleep, to waken justice and love. We thought we were ready to be just as good, to be better. And despite all the ways we exist alone, no one would be on their own. We were ready to take a stab at a kind of human kind of union. We were ready to check up, to look after in this one way. We were ready to care for each other. We were ready to see our range of possibilities as a precious commodity, to know every other as another, to live in the width of our being. And we weren't ignorant or stupid or naive or idealists or socialists or communists or Canadians. We understood the private options would still keep us alive longer. We understood the private options would treat the diseases, not the symptoms. The private options meant access to specialists, to privacy, to elective procedures, to a team of doctors to radiology imaging to brand name drugs we understood the impossibility of real equality but this single shift toward a national community we thought despite being founded on genocide and sustained by slavery in God's country we thought we were ready to see sanity inside the humanity we thought the improbability of the face on Capitol Hill meant possibility. I, as I said I don't think it's her best work I do appreciate that despite the or maybe in, in concert with the lack of punctuation except at the very end and the um, stuttering paratactical syntax throughout, I was grateful at least for the, the seemingly sincere ambivalence that this poem seems to take toward its subject matter an ambivalence that one, as I said, doesn't really see in her work anymore. I wanted though, because um, as I said, Tony Hoagland died just a few years after this. He's, you know, the this, the last years of his life, he was pretty firmly stamped with this scandal. And I think, you know, his his star had pretty decisively fallen as Claudia Rankins rose in the years following. She published uh, Citizen, I think in 2014. Um, when Hoagland died though, there, were, there was one response that I thought was really worth noting. And this, this is it's related maybe obliquely to the, the reason that I came back to this controversy to begin with, which is, which is that funny thing Hoagland says when he says, she asks him, what were you thinking? And his response is, this poem is for white people which she in her talk then goes on to invoke a few times the whites only signs prominent during uh, official legal segregation in the American South. But uh, even though he doesn't say whites only, he says this poem is for white people. It's pretty obvious why that that was the reference that came to her mind. It also just seems so nasty to (laughs) to say that you're, I mean, just like, it's like, is there ever a circumstance where it, where it's like, it seems like a good idea to say that you're only writing for white people? I mean, I guess, again, like that's honestly, it's part of what like makes my skin crawl about, about programs like Robin DeAngelo's. And she like, she, she wants to set up like white affinity groups. Like it's, it's important to have white only spaces. And you're like, oh, haven't we tried that? Isn't that a bad idea? Uh, but, but this, question the kind of the 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 deeper question within that pretty appalling statement on his part is this question of whether a poet is responsible for all of his poems audiences or whether it's legitimate for him really to write mostly with one audience in mind you know i think that though i i shared on john dilworth's uh, hope that you know my poems could be available to everybody, available not just physically or verbally, but uh, emotionally, intellectually. I, I also think that that it that poems written truly for everybody may end up being written ultimately for, for nobody. Uh, so I, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea to write only for white people. I think that's that's pretty pretty much always a bad idea. But it, it may not be fair to say, well, you must be responsible for how every group of people reads your poems. The response I wanted to read to Hoagland's death is from uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts, who is someone very much not. Of Tony Hoagland's milieu, at least not to begin with. He is now a pretty prominent American poet, celebrated American poet, um, but uh, early on in life had a very different set of circumstances, very different background. So this is what he wrote when Tony Hoagland died. And when Tony Hoagland died, again, the, the shadow of this scandal was absolutely hanging over him. I mean, it was the only thing that came to mind when his name came up in, in, in conversations about, with other poets. And to be honest, really, when did it come up not in conversations with other poets? So this is what Reginald Dwayne Betts wrote. He wrote, Tony Hoagland has passed, and this is what I want to say. When I was in prison, he wrote me a letter. He typed that letter and fixed multiple mistakes. He sent me the carbon copies and all of his flaws were revealed to me. I guess he didn't mind. This is the Tony Hoagland I'll remember. People will say whatever they want, but all of us will die. And if you made a single person feel how, to, how Hoagland made me feel when he sent me that letter, a letter to a young convict in a state prison, you're winning. He goes on, much of who I am as a writer is because Hoagland wrote me back. I wrote more than a dozen writers from prison and none of them wrote me back. Hoagland did. So, you know, I'm basically going to defend him until I die. And I'm quite okay with you not liking that. And more importantly, I'm quite okay with defending a man who doesn't deserve defending. Because last I checked, none of us deserve to be defended. Betz said elsewhere that he could believe that Hoagland was racist, he said, even if he were racist, even if he, even if, Beth said, even if I knew for a fact that he was racist, I would still want to study under him. I would still want to learn from him, which is a kind of, you know, in, in uh, Hoagland's word, a kind of resilience that I find it hard to imagine in myself. I mean, it does remind me of my my beloved mentor, Jane, who back at Vanderbilt uh, after the war, did an end run around a sexist professor who refused to teach her because she was a woman by applying elsewhere for funding and then returning to Vanderbilt with it and forcing him to take her as a student. Because despite his uh, overt, explicit sexism toward her, his refusal to teach her because she was a woman, she still wanted to learn from him. And she did. She just very cheerfully said, "Now you don't have a choice. You have to teach me." And she said she learned a great deal from him about literature. Again, I, I can't claim that that is that's something that should be expected of of anyone. I certainly don't know that I would be capable of that kind of uh, good, you know, goodwill, uh, you know, strength of spirit. But it's pretty hard not to be moved by Bet's testimony there. I don't know. I don't know. How a poet should think about his readers exactly. I mean, I think I am, I worry when a poet only has one ideal reader in mind. You know, oh, I write every poem for my cousin. I think, well, ah, that sounds limiting. But I also worry when a poet has no particular reader in mind. He says, oh, I'm just, I'm not writing for any reader. And you're like, well, that's also not a good idea. Uh, I don't think you probably want to aim just for one race at a time, but but neither do I think you can be held responsible for how every different group reads your poems. I'll go ahead and give uh, the last word to uh, Betts. He wrote uh, before, before Hoagland's death, but but after two years after um, Cla- uh, Claudia Rankin's presentation at AWP, he published a piece in poetry magazine called What It Is, which is a sort of... It's a sort of poetry manifesto. I, uh, how are we doing? We're going a little long, but fuck it. I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, it's not too long. I should say, I disagree with a bunch of this. I, I think he's, I don't, I don't agree <laughs> with a lot of the things he says here, but I, I take them and the way he says them, it, it, the way I take what Nietzsche says. Uh, I mean, Nietzsche, I also disagree with many things he says, but he has an attitude that, that, like Betts's, is both unapologetic and uh, unprotective. Un- I mean, he, he, neither does he write saying, let me pre-apologize for everything that I'm going to say and let you know ahead of time that you're permitted to disagree with me, nor does he seem to worry about achieving some sort of like universal eye of history, unimpeachable correctness. Which, which seems to be very much the way people tend to write today. Just, just to-be-suring and caveating nonstop on their way to expressing just the faintest ghost of an opinion. He just makes some claims about poetry that, uh, that I think are worth hearing. Like, like my favorite writers, they're worth hearing out, even when I think they're wrong. Um, and a lot of what he says I think is quite right. So I'm, I'm just going to read this and then we'll call it a day. Um, I I have liked a lot of his writing. I wonder. I don't. I should read more of him, but I wonder if he's not a better prose writer than a poet. I probably have not read enough to say, but at any rate, here is uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts. Uh, I'll call it a manifesto because I think it, I think it is basically. Um, it's called What It Is. This was in Poetry Magazine in two thousand March two thousand thirteen. What It Is by Reginald Dwayne Betts. This ain't about risk. Risk is living below the poverty line in the worst part of town. Risk is raising a black boy in a town with laws like Stand Your Ground. Risk is being a single parent without family or community support. Risk is what soldiers, police officers, firefighters encounter. Poetry is about language, words, about being as honest as you can on the page. There are things you say in a room with friends, things you hear others say and can't forget because you spent an hour arguing with them or laughing. The poem should be that, something worth screaming about. Don't forget Yeats. Respond to the political in all its ambiguity because you know the people who died, not because you caught the highlights on the news. Don't write about being white. Don't be afraid to hate poems. Don't be afraid to hate your own. There are no large issues in America outside of race. Derek Walcott said this. If you're writing and not thinking of race, you're still thinking of race by avoiding it. Don't be the person who only notices the elephant in the room. Don't believe them when they say a poem has room for everything. Only the grave does. Stop with the allusions to dead poets. You do something other than read poetry. Don't be the poet who, ensconced in your 401k and tenure track, dismisses the man on the corner selling his work fresh from Kinko's. He could be Whitman. I keep arguing about vernacular, what it is, what it means. Who has a right to it? For real, I'm confronting the fact that I lost all the slang of my youth in my youth. The poem is the only way I have of getting it back. Don't betray the people you write about. Don't believe the reviewer who wrote, I am not sure it is possible for a Negro to write well without making us aware he is a Negro. On the other hand, if being a negro is the only subject, the writing is not important. Don't strip your poem of identity. Don't make your identity the poems. Pay homage, but if the illest thing about your poem is your litany of influences, you wrote a bibliography. Call it that. Don't feel too bad about that last line. Right now, there is someone lying to a child, praising the work of some 13-year-old kid as if it were the sign of latent genius. Don't be that person. Teaching poetry to children isn't about discovering genius. It's about discovering language and discovering the difficulties inherent in manipulating it. Don't walk into an underserved classroom imagining that the poems the kids write will replace all that they aren't learning. Don't front like poems are born out of experiences and not the reckless wrestling with nouns and verbs and all the other engines of language. Work in a place where no one knows what an I am is. Don't condescend. There is prejudice in calling something beautiful for the act and not the fact. The colloquial is always musical. You lucky I can't breathe or I'd walk all up and down your ass. That was What It Is by Reginald Dwayne Betts. And this is Sli Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.